Welcome to The Gallopod, with me, Galloplicidia. In this episode, I'm reading part two of my fic, Teenage Wasteland. If you're not here for dry fanfic, you're in the wrong place. Content warning. This story deals with themes of domestic violence, child abuse, and alcoholism. I hope you enjoy Teenage Wasteland. Chapter 2 Ron and Hermione met him at the Portkey station. Hermione was a little too careful, and Ron a little too rough, but it didn't matter to Harry. They were there, and the two or three fragile friendships he had made in Los Angeles, that he had convinced himself were fine and enough, were revealed suddenly for what they were, paper thin. He had not realised just how lonely the last two years had been until Ron slapped him on the back and Hermione smiled at him. They went back to Grimmauld Place. Hermione had cleaned it out. All the furniture that Harry had smashed when he got bitten, when he came to understand that his life was permanently changed, had been removed. The auras would take you back, you know, Ron told him, as they ate pizza in the kitchen. Oh yeah, said Harry, keep me around like a sniffer dog. Is that how you thought of Lupin? asked Hermione, and Harry was sick of it. He got up and cleared his plate. Moving helped with the ache a bit, the constant pain in his muscles. Harry ran five miles a day because his body was agony if he didn't, but only sex really put a damper on the dull pain, and even then, only for a short while. I'm not going back, he said. He knew that behind him, Ron and Hermione were looking at each other. He knew they were disappointed, that they thought his time abroad would have helped him come to terms with it. As if Harry could ever get used to the idea of being inherently dangerous, of being contagious. In any case, he'd gone to LA in the hope of a cure, not for self-acceptance. There had been a weird werewolf pandemic in the Hollywood Hills in the 60s, and consequently the healers there had discovered all sorts of advanced treatments. But Harry had gone because there was an old crystal witch who thought she had found a cure, a way to reverse that bone-crunching moment when he had been bitten. Two years he had drifted through LA's wide, dry boulevards, hating every moment, hope keeping him bitter. And her cure had worked, on 20% of the participants, just not on Harry. "'What are you going to do if not?' said Ron, but Hermione interrupted. "'Andrew got married, did you hear?' Harry expected to feel more tense at the news, more protective. That was one of the symptoms he had read, but he hadn't noticed it yet. He barely thought about any of the people he had had sex with, and there were a lot of them post-LA. The only person he thought of in the way the books had said he would, obsessively, aggressively, was Draco Malfoy. Harry thought this was probably because he was the last person he'd had sex with before he was turned, and also because he was basically responsible. Harry would never have been at that drop if it hadn't been for Malfoy's information. Married, he said, and who's the lucky spouse? Amazing that he managed to find someone who doesn't mind having their dick described in detail to which weekly. Ron made a low growling sound. I always hated him, he said. Remember Hermione, the first time I met him, I said he was a twat. Hermione sighed. He wasn't a twat. That's why it was so horrible, she said. Harry and Andrew had dated for six months. Six months, it turned out, had been long enough for Harry to fall in love and for Andrew to give an intensive, exclusive interview about Harry, Harry's genitals, Harry's insecurities, and Harry's lingering war trauma. A week after the breakup, Harry had spotted Draco Malfoy in a supermarket. It had felt like fate, like Harry couldn't possibly trust anyone he hadn't known before the war, and now here Malfoy was, gorgeous and quiet and smiling. And for a moment, well, for the duration, it had felt as if maybe everything were clicking into place, 
Harry had by that time figured out that a good proportion of his fascination with Malfoy in school had been about wanting to tug his silvery hair, to get close to his smart mouth. In bed, it seemed as if Malfoy was admitting to having felt exactly the same. And they had been through the same things. They understood each other, or Harry had briefly thought they did, and it had occurred to Harry as he took Malfoy's lovely face in his hands, as Malfoy touched Harry's chest so gently. It had occurred to him that maybe this was a coming home, an ending, a rest after so many years of hunting. But, of course, Malfoy was only doing his own version of what Andrew had done, using him, although Harry wasn't sure how, fooling him into thinking he was one thing and turning out to be the same selfish bully he had always been. Harry didn't know why he had expected anything different. He didn't date anymore. He went to muggle nightclubs and had one-night stands. Do you remember Zachariah Smith? asked Hermione. Harry laughed. You're joking. Andrew married Smith. Match made in heaven, said Ron. Pair of prats. They'll get a divorce in two years. Just watch, said Harry. He opened his fridge and looked inside, just to give his hand something to do. Don't you think, he said, Hermione. Hermione smiled. I think they deserve each other, she said. It was good to be back in England. He had missed clouds and decent chocolate, and being able to order tea at a coffee shop without having to patiently walk the barista through the process. Within three days, he was restless. It wasn't new, the restlessness. He had always hated doing nothing, but it had got more pronounced since the bite. He had found that sex seemed temporarily to stop his brain from turning itself inside out, and of course it was the only way to calm the constant ache in his muscles. His body felt as if he had been trapped on a long-haul flight for days, no matter how much exercise he did. He had never been clubbing in Britain. It was different, much more formal somehow. He had to confund the bouncer to be let in, a single man in jeans. Unlike in LA, all the girls wore heels and full faces of makeup. Harry stood on the dance floor and let the music pound through him, beating in his blood. She found him out, the blue-haired girl. She was younger than Harry, no older than 18 or 19, Harry would have guessed, although it was hard to tell in the low club lighting. She had a nose piercing and rings all up her ears, and she came to him as if he had ordered her there, eyes hard and determined. He could feel it coming off her in waves, her availability. It wasn't a smell, exactly. It wasn't as if being part wolf meant he could sniff out people's arousal. It was more subtle than that. He could feel it. I know you want me, she seemed to say. You can have me. She was painfully beautiful. She smirked slightly as she put her hands on his chest. He pulled her close, began to sway her to the music. She stretched up her graceful neck, rested her nose against his chin. Then she was ripped out of his grasp, and Malfoy stood, incandescent with rage. He was eerily lovely in the flashing lights. Stay away from her, he shouted at Harry. Harry could barely make out the words through the music. Malfoy had his hand tight on the blue-haired girl's upper arm, and Harry realised that she was his girlfriend with a whirl, a wave of feelings. Anger and outrage and jealousy and resentment. And beyond that, like hope at the bottom of Pandora's box, came joy. The joy that Malfoy's girlfriend had tried to cheat on him with Harry. Sorry she likes me more than you, said Harry, but he doubted whether Draco heard him. He cast Harry a look of deep disdain, then pulled the girl off the dance floor, out of sight. Harry kept laughing for a while after Malfoy and his girlfriend had left, but he was conscious of something unpleasant growing in his chest. 
The idea of Malfoy having a girlfriend. The knowledge scraped at his heart, bitterly unfair. Andrew, happily married. Malfoy dating some beautiful girl. All these shitty people finding each other, exercising their loneliness. And Harry stood alone in a muggle nightclub, dreading the full moon. Draco apparated them back to their flat, even though you weren't supposed to do that with minors, technically. He let go of her the moment they arrived in the kitchen. Adelaide! What the fuck? She crossed her arms. My body, my rules. You said that. And then you cock-blocked me. One rule, said Draco. No more than a year older than you. Potter is my age. And he's famous. And he wanted me. You're just fucking jealous and sad because no one ever wants to sleep with you. It's pathetic. Draco stepped back, felt the countertop with his fingers. He tried to shield his face, but he knew he hadn't succeeded because Adelaide bit her lip and tilted her head down. There was a long silence while Draco tried to think what to say. He had been furious when he saw Potter holding Adelaide, the way he was always furious about Adelaide. Not only was Potter too old, but he had every societal and economic advantage. The dynamics would have rendered Adelaide essentially powerless, and Draco hated that. But there had been something else, too, some uprooting of his heart, as he watched Potter hold someone else, look at someone else, and remembered what that had been like. How worthy he had felt for an hour, how worthless afterwards. It was embarrassing that he still wasn't over it. You're too young to go clubbing, he said. How did you even get in? You have to be 18. Adelaide gave him a scornful look. Yes, and no one would ever dream of letting a pretty underage girl into a club. Everyone goes clubbing at 15, she said. I didn't, said Draco. That's because you were at nerdy wizard school, said Adelaide. Their social worker had advised against sending Adelaide to Hogwarts, said she would stand out too much as a new fourth-year student, particularly one who had been through as much as Adelaide had. So Adelaide went to a muggle state school, and Draco tutored her in the evenings, convinced he was failing her. So you're telling me that Tasha and Fiona and Ellie all go off clubbing by themselves trying to sleep with 22-year-olds? He asked. Adelaide looked caught out. Well, they're just immature, she said. Draco laughed unhappily. They only want to dance. Unlike you, he said. Adelaide stuck out her chin, and a horrible thought occurred to Draco. Did Potter... Did he know how old you were? Of course not, said Adelaide. They never want to do anything if you tell them that. What a tragedy, murmured Draco. Have you been drinking? No, lied Adelaide. Draco sighed. Sit down, he said. Are you done shouting at me? For the moment, said Draco. Adelaide clunked over to the table. Her high heels were heavy. Draco had bought them for her when she got a 95% on her English exam. They had worked so hard for that exam together and then she had taken him to Debenhams and tried on a thousand pairs of shoes before settling on these. She had thrown her arms around his neck and said, I love you, when he handed her the bag to carry. He made a full English breakfast. For once, she didn't complain that it was fattening when he gave it to her, just tucked in, eating in neat, graceful bites. Tertius had taught her perfect table manners. Draco watched her eat and wondered if this was payback for what a little shit he had been when he was fifteen. He might have believed it, if she had merely been nasty to him, but that wasn't the worst thing about Adelaide. The worst thing was how constantly he was scared for her. She put her knife and fork neatly on her plate. Fiona fancies you, she said. She looked up at him with soft, apologetic eyes, 
Draco couldn't quite meet them. Is that your way of saying sorry for calling me pathetic? He asked. You only think you're pathetic. You're not actually, she said. <laughs> you flatter are you. She pushed her plate forward, resting her arms on the table, fiddling with her bangles. Draco suspected she had shoplifted them. How did you find me, anyway? she asked. Would you believe that I was at that club myself? When Adelaide slept over with people he trusted, as she had told him she was that night, Draco went out to clubs and bars. People touched him there, kissed him sometimes. Once he had gone home with a man, but when they arrived at his flat, Draco had abruptly understood he couldn't go through with it, and left, and never tried again. But he still went out, because muggle girls smiled at him, and muggle boys danced with him, and for those meagre hours he felt young again. Adelaide looked at him with interest. Draco, have you been having fun? Careful, the war dead will come and get you if you laugh without the shadows of the past and your haunted eyes. Draco smiled and sent her plate to the sink with a flick of his wand. Yes, all right, he said. I think you have enough fun for the both of us. Fun, she said, her expression changing. Is that what you think I'm having? Draco held his hand out across the table. She took it. Please don't scare me like that, he said quietly. As if Harry Potter would have hurt me, she said. He's, what, six, seven years older than me? Thirty-six-year-olds date thirty-year-olds all the time. I know it doesn't feel weird to you, but I promise you it should feel weird to the twenty-two-year-old. Anyone who's all right with that kind of power dynamic is bad news, said Draco. I'm mature for my age, said Adelaide. You know I am. We had an agreement. No more than a year older than you. You swore. Adelaide took her hand out of his. Okay, fine, I'm sorry, she said, not sounding sorry at all. Then, more slowly, more truthful, I didn't mean to scare you. I just want you to be happy, said Draco. Ha, said Adelaide. Happy is for stupid people. Oh yes, I forgot. We're tortured artists, said Draco. Suffering for our art, said Adelaide. Draco checked the cheerful clock above the stove. It's late, he said. It's Friday, countered Adelaide. Let's watch something. Draco knew that if he were a good parental figure, he would send her to her room, her ears ringing with his admonishments. But he wasn't any good. Look at her. He was too lonely and fucked up to do anything but love her. I'm not watching Coyote Ugly again he said. Oh, come on! No, he said. You're the one who gave me a heart attack tonight. I get to pick the film, and it's Gladiator. Ah, fine, said Adelaide. Can we get more wine? Draco rubbed his eyes. I'm going to hell, he said. It was a new concept, one he had discovered while helping her with a religion essay, and it had had a huge and wholly awful impact on his happiness. Yes, white's already open in the fridge. She curled up next to him, her blue head resting on his shoulder, shouting at the screen and yelping at the violence. She only drank half a glass of wine. She never drank much around him. He wished she would, wished she'd go get smashed with her friends instead of drinking alone in her room late at night. Draco's therapist said he could only control himself, that he could only do his best. Draco thought his therapist wasn't all that intelligent. He only went because Adelaide refused to go to hers if he wasn't also seeing someone. She fell asleep, as she always did, in the middle of the most climactic scene, her head lolling into Draco. 
He watched the rest of the film, then carried her to her bedroom. Took off her shoes, her bangles, the one spiky earring that hurt her when she stepped on it. She woke up when he tucked the duvet under her chin. Love you, she said. Go back to sleep, said Draco. And she did, a peaceful look settling over her sad, beautiful face. Draco hated his boss, and his boss hated him. Mr Dinsmore suffered from the kind of insecurity that masks itself imperfectly with arrogance, and there was perhaps no better way for Mr Dinsmore to show that he was a brilliant potions master than by telling anyone who would listen that Draco was abysmally shit. Anyone who would listen was the customers and the shop girl, Cynthia. Draco liked Cynthia almost as much as he disliked Mr Dinsmore. Cynthia had a bland sort of face, and listened to Mr Dinsmore's anti-Draco screeds with the heavy-lidded impassiveness of a cow being read a poem. Probably the real reason Mr Dinsmore hated Draco so much was that Draco was better than him at his job. Within about three months of working at Dinsmore's Potions Emporium, Draco was making all the complex orders. He stayed in the back room as much as possible, where no one bothered him. Cynthia would come and get him at lunch, in her bland way. Sandwich time? And sometimes Mr Dinsmore would lean against the doorframe and tell him he was doing it wrong, that he was lucky he had a job at all, that he had a bad attitude. But apart from that, Draco was blissfully alone, lost in his work, it was the only time he ever felt as if he were good for something. Draco, said Mr Dinsmore, there's a new potion you need to make. I don't have the time. My arse, thought Draco. It was probably just too difficult for him. But he kept his mouth shut. That was something Tertius had taught him. When to be quiet, which, depressingly, was always. And waited. It's some sort of Californian werewolf potion, said Dinsmore, handing him a piece of parchment with the instructions on it. It looked horribly complicated. Draco's heart swelled. It had been a long time since he had been challenged. You look chipper, said Adelaide that evening. She was still in her school uniform, her hair neatly glamoured brown. Draco tapped her head with his wand, and the glamour lifted. New werewolf potion, he said. I've never seen anything like it. If taken weekly, it looks as if it should stop the drinker from transforming more than twice a year. Nerd, said Adelaide kicking off her shoes and dropping her rucksack on the kitchen table. We read a good short story in English. You should look at it. She pulled it out and gave it to him. It was by someone named Guy de Maupassant. He sat at the table and read while Adelaide made tea. She tossed him an apple and he caught it without looking up. Everything reads better with an apple, she said. Adelaide, is this a story about a person making a mistake in their youth and it ruining the rest of their life? asked Draco. Adelaide froze. Um, yes? Draco flung the story back at her. Yeah, I'm not reading that, he said. Adelaide bounced up and down on her toes. Sorry, 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 I forgot, she said. She looked like a toddler desperate for the loo. Charms today, said Draco. Did you practice the cheering charms? Have I ruined your day? Weak, said Draco. Life, really, <laughs> said Adelaide. But the joke didn't hit right. Draco nudged her leg with his toe. Adelaide, stop spiralling. Cheering charms, did you practice? Sorry, yes, yes, I did practice, and I did the reading. She took a strand of her hair and chewed on it for a moment. I should have thought. I know that kind of thing makes you sad. The story, I mean. It didn't make me sad, said Draco. It might have done, said Adelaide. It didn't. Now sit down and focus. Adelaide took off her school blazer, sank into the seat opposite him and rummaged around in her rucksack for her wand. "'Can I make dinner tonight?' she asked, putting the wand in a notebook on the kitchen table. 
Only if you get this right, and if you do your other homework. Please, there's this new recipe that I... Then you'd better focus on charms, then, hadn't you? It frustrated Draco, how difficult it was to get Adelaide interested in magic. She treated it like it was some favour she was doing him, and seemed to think the whole thing was deeply uncool. She almost never talked about her life before Tertius, but he understood that her father, a wizard, had walked out on her muggle mother without ever letting her know about magic. The mother had left Adelaide with some friends when Adelaide was ten, and never returned. From there, Adelaide was passed around from family to family, no one wanting her, until Tertius. He rescued me, she had told Draco once. I know, Draco had answered. Me too. Draco knew why she didn't like magic. She was behind, so behind that she would never catch up at this rate, and Adelaide hated not being good at things. At school, she was considered an Oxbridge candidate. At home, she could see that she was working from second-year textbooks. Around eight, Tasha, Fiona and Ellie came over. It still brought Draco a thrill of smug pleasure that they were allowed over. None of their parents had been keen on him at first, but Draco had gone to every obnoxious parent event and smiled and brought terrible badly iced cupcakes until he had finally earned their trust. The girls crowded into the flat, shedding coats and bags and shoes, opening cupboards, poking into the fridge. Hi, Draco, said Fiona, sidling over. Ellie got a detention today because Mr Flanders is sexist, said Ellie. He called Jane Austen Chicklet, not sexist, said Tasha. Hmm, said Draco. What did you call him in return? A chauvinistic pig, said Ellie. She had retrieved a plastic box of grapes from the fridge and was picking through to find the good ones. You went straight for the big guns, said Draco. Stop touching all the grapes, Ellie, that's disgusting, said Adelaide. They're all manky, Draco. Ellie looked up and smiled, her wheedling I want something expression. Is there any chocolate? Is there? Is there? Is there? Draco sighed. I'll go to the shops, he said. He looked at Adelaide. Be good? When am I not? asked Adelaide. He went to bed before them their music and laughter bleeding through the walls. It was his favourite sound to fall asleep to. Adelaide, safe and happy and near. The potion was tricky, and he had to get some weird ingredients from the unfriendly lady who ran the potion supply shop in Richmond. But three days later, Draco had done it. He was quietly thrilled. He had thought for a moment he might fail. Mr Dinsmore uncorked it, smelled it, and handed it back to Draco with a sour look. Fine. Deliver it today. It's already late. He was supposed to get it yesterday, he said, and handed Draco an address on a piece of paper. Draco didn't realise it was Potter's house until he was standing on the doorstep, ringing the bell. He didn't have time to do more than think, oh, this is not, before the door was opening and Potter was there. Draco held out the potion. Potion, he said, stupidly. Potter looked as displeased as Draco felt. You're not Dinsmore, he said. I work for him, said Draco. A memory flashed, Potter sneering at him, Potter pushing him roughly into a chair, it hurting because Draco was still sore from... And then a different memory, of Potter above him, the veins in his arms, the look on his face. Draco felt his cheeks grow hot. Well, come in, said Potter. He disappeared into the house, and Draco followed after him, into a grim little sitting room. There was a tapestry on the wall that Draco recognised. Oh, he said. This is the Black House. It's mine, said Potter, practically snarling, as if Draco had said, I have assembled an army of ten thousand men and I am here to reclaim my ancestral home. I know, said Draco, 
Chill, Potter. It never worked on him when Adelaide told him to chill, and it certainly didn't work on Potter. His wand was suddenly in Draco's face. Potter, what the fuck? You need to sign a secrecy contract, like Dinsmore, said Potter. His wand dug into Draco's neck. Jesus, fine, don't fucking cut me open again, said Draco, as if he wasn't frightened. Potter seemed slightly taken aback. He lowered his wand, looking almost sheepish, then shoved a piece of parchment forward on the coffee table. Draco let himself pretend to read it for a few seconds while his heart rate lowered. Fucking Potter. Once he could no longer feel his pulse in his throat, Draco focused on the parchment and read it carefully. He would not be able to tell anyone he had even seen Potter, let alone what he had sold him. Draco signed it, still not understanding. Then his eye fell on the potion that he still had in his hand, and he laughed. Oh, he said, you're a werewolf. God, you weren't special enough, were you? Potter looked at him with something close to loathing. Draco remembered how tender he had been, how slowly he'd worked Draco open, how it had still hurt, how he'd not wanted to say anything because he wanted to impress Potter, to keep Potter looking at him like he had that day, kind and sympathetic. It was on your tip, Malfoy, so thanks for that, said Potter. Royally fucked up my life, you'll be glad to know. Oh, good, my plan succeeded, said Draco. My grand plan to turn you into a werewolf. Finally, my ambitions have been reached. They were standing six inches apart. Potter looked furious. Draco didn't know much about werewolves. He'd had a bit of a crush on Lupin in third year, but obviously he'd never told anyone about that, and had done his best to repress it at the time. Potter didn't seem any different from how he'd always been. Strong and lethal and too good-looking by half. You're so funny, Malfoy said Potter. Always so funny, with your funny little bigotry and your witty little murder attempts and your hilarious betrayals. Shut up, said Draco, shoving at him. You don't know me. Don't touch me, said Potter, grabbing Draco's wrists, and terror surged up in Draco, metallic and paralysing. Tertius had taken his wrists like that, had dragged him, screaming to the kitchen door, had... Potter let go of him. His anger seemed tinged with confusion now. Draco was feeling his right hand with his left, a nervous tick, checking it was all right. He forced himself to stop. Potter wasn't Tertius. It would be a fair fight, at least, if it came to that. The silence between them was loud with their breaths, and to stop thinking of Tertius, Draco fixated on Potter's exquisitely carved jaw. Draco had kissed it that time, all along the sharp ridge, and it hadn't been enough, not nearly. Draco stared at it, trying to recover from the adrenaline that had shot through him, and Potter took a small step forward. When he spoke, his voice was more human, as if some of his anger had been shaken away. If you tell a soul I've been bitten, so help me God, Malfoy, I'll... I signed the bloody contract, said Draco, turning from him. But Potter was closer than he had realised, and Draco knocked into his firm chest. Potter's other hand caught him at the waist, and then... Draco wasn't sure how it happened, who had initiated, but they were kissing, furiously and Potter pushed him onto the sofa and climbed on top of him and kissed him harder. It was definitely hot. It was also a bit horrible, because Potter seemed so angry still, and Draco didn't feel angry at all anymore, just desperate, just hopeful in that hopeless way, as if there was some chance that if Draco kissed Potter well enough, Potter would like him again. Gross, he could imagine Adelaide telling him. Have some self-respect. This time, Potter didn't lead him into his bedroom. Asio lube, he said. Wait, said Draco. They had somehow got mostly naked. Draco wasn't even sure how that had happened, 
although he knew he had torn most of Potter's clothes off in a frenzy of lust, so that was probably a clue. What? asked Potter. Black eyes, with a sliver of green around the edge. His hair looked as it always did, perennial sex hair, it was truly enviable. The jar of lube came whistling into the room, and Potter caught it, plucked it out of the air like it was nothing. I'm not doing that again, said Draco. Potter frowned. Why? You liked it last time. Well, I'm not doing it this time. Why don't you? Potter's expression was hard. I'm not letting you, he said. Oh, of course, it's fine for you to fuck me, but God forbid the Chosen One's manliness should be impugned. It's not about manliness, you prat. It's about trust, said Potter. They were both sitting up now. Draco was still so hard. Potter shirtless was truly a sight to behold. Fine, said Draco. Lie down. Don't touch my hair. Potter looked confused. What? Lie down, said Draco again. Don't touch my hair. I... (laughs) Okay, said Potter, and lay back on the sofa, following Draco with his eyes as Draco bent down. Draco had never done it before, and he intended to show how careless he was, how this was just sex to him also, or maybe even just anger. But unfortunately, sucking Potter's dick turned out to be a distinctly intimate thing, and Draco couldn't help but do it slowly, carefully, as if it mattered to him. Which, obviously, it did. Potter didn't touch him. Draco had told him not to because he had gel in his hair, and he was worried that Potter would be repulsed by it. Still, there was something miserable about swallowing without a grateful touch. An acknowledgement. He sat up. He thought Potter should reciprocate, and thus probably would, because he was Potter and tended to do his duty. But in case he wasn't going to... Draco didn't want to presume. Draco reached for his trousers. Potter knocked them out of his grasp and pushed Draco back against the cushions. He didn't use his mouth, just his hand. Draco came embarrassingly quickly. They were still for a moment, not looking at each other. Then Potter just waved his hand and the mess disappeared. What on earth? said Draco. Potter shrugged, as if it was no big deal. It was so hot that if things had been different, Draco would have jumped on him and gone again. Instead, he dressed quickly, not saying a word. Potter lay naked on the sofa, watching him. Draco's gaze fell on the potion on the coffee table, and he closed his eyes in horror. You, he said. He took a breath. You'll need to pay me for the potion. Potter laughed unpleasantly and summoned a small bag of gold. He tossed it at Draco, who pocketed it and made to go, ashamed and confused and turned on still. That girl at the club, said Potter, and Draco stopped, a shiver stealing over his skin. Adelaide, he said. How could he have been so stupid? Of course Potter knew that Draco was Adelaide's guardian. Of course he would be worried for Adelaide's welfare, would assume that Draco wasn't responsible enough to care for her, would see that Draco wasn't responsible enough to care for her. He'd probably been at that club as a test. Nice girl, said Potter, with a laugh. She doesn't want for anything said Draco. Potter made a disbelieving sound, but didn't speak. Draco waited another few seconds at the door, then left. That was part two of Teenage Wasteland, written and read by Gallup Zidia. Tune in next week for part three. Don't forget to join my newsletter, if you fancy, at newsletter.gallopod.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a rating and a review on the Apple Podcast app, and why not share it with a friend who you think will like the show? I also have an Instagram at let them eat books with underscores into the spaces where I post reviews of the books I read. So please say hello on there. Thank you for listening.